0: Uh, Joining me now is National Post reporter and columnist Tristan Hopper. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. What do you think of this tip thing? Have you noticed this as well? You were just traveling around as well. Is it the same everywhere? Are you being asked to fork out more for your service everywhere you go?
1: Oh, yeah. I have lots of strong opinions about tipping that we could get into. Uh, For for several years, uh, I worked in tipping um, professions. I delivered pizza and then was a server. So... Uh, wh- one thing I noticed about being a server, it was sort of a semi-high-end uh, seafood restaurant, is I, was, I-, I thought, hey, this is uh, a lot of money. And I don't think, in-, in that particular case, people had no idea just how much servers make. Like, we're talking about a low-skilled job, You know, 19 years old at the time, where I'm walking away with like 250 $300 per night sometimes. Tax free because everybody cheats on their taxes on their servers. Um, You know, plus uh, since it's BC and and not bad minimum wage on top of that, and you're only working five hours a night. So uh, yeah, it's an obscene amount of money. Like the amount of money I made then when as a server at 19 with no skills, working just evenings, um, it took me years to equal that kind of income, um, as a professional, as a journalist. So it's really been in the last few years in which I've sort of reached that threshold. So, uh, yeah, in certain places, uh, yeah, you're tipping like, Oh, you know, you got you to protect the little guy. It's like, no, no, you're protecting someone who is making like $90,000 a year, um, to work, work as a server. Um, but, uh, when it comes to the, uh, like nudge thing, yeah, I bet no problem. If, if someone has clearly just handed me a Coke, and they're like, you know, I want you to pay 15% because I just, you know, took this Coke out of a fridge and gave it to you. I'll put zero percent, and I, I, I don't think I'm getting any kind of glare. Um, I, I think I just kind of – I'm a semi-scary-looking person, so I think most people are just kind of looking at me with contempt. So it's, it's really status quo, nothing's changed.
0: I was going to say it would have been great to have been served by you at a at a high end seafood restaurant, Tristan. It would have been <laughs> it would have been a, a fun experience, no doubt. No, you probably made the tips. Just it's out not of there sheer... anymore.
1: I'd like to think oh. possibly I contributed to that.
0: You're just back from a vacation over the border I gather. So that would have meant you had to use the ArriveCan app. I know you've been I know you wrote about it a while back, but um more scandals now with this thing. I mean, I used it too. You know, it's not the worst, but now it looks like it might be sticking around as well and there's a lot of people up in arms about this. What's your thoughts on the Arrive the, the much dreaded ArriveCan app? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I think uh, I mean, the argument from the government is, uh, well, we should it's good to sort of streamline these things. And, you know, it's not tremendously hard to use. And I'm all for that. uh, But what the problem is, is they made it mandatory. There is absolutely no way around it, which is a weird way to put it in a government program, particularly for something critical like border security. So there's any number of people, particularly from the United States, who are showing up at the border. Like, oh, yeah, your border's open. Uh, here's my here's my vaccine passport. Here's my actual passport. I'm looking forward to spending some money at the Niagara Falls Casinos. And we say, oh, sorry, we run everything through this pain in the ass app now. And they're like, well, what, what is this app? Uh, where do I download it? What do I have to click? And they can't figure it out because they're old or something. Because um, it, it's somewhat user-friendly, but not really. Um, there's quite a lot of steps to fill out. It's confusing, particularly when you have vacation brain. Um, so... You know, predictably, uh, we have a whole bunch of backups at the border, and you have people in tourist areas. And this is not a partisan thing. Uh, NDPers, Democrats, Republicans, because people on both sides of the border hate this thing, um, are saying, we're not, it's never been made entirely clear why we need this. Um, every other country in the world, if they have a vaccine mandate at the border, and, you know, increasingly nobody does um they just say well flash your vaccine card uh, that's what the u.s does uh, when you go into the u.s just uh, okay we need you need, need to be delvax, flash flash your vaccination but for some reason canada is like well you have to upload it to this uh, pain in the ass smartphone app and you have to put in the date of your vaccines and a whole bunch of places you're going and then you got to sign you know check the privacy policy and get the female if you screw up any of those things Um, it's not going to get submitted. You thought you submitted it, but you're going to show up and just get some CBSA guard looking at you and saying, well, you didn't submit it, and you can't get into the country until you figure this out. Um, That's what happened to me. My mom didn't fill it out right, because, again, she's old, not great with a smartphone, and the CBSA person says, oh, sorry, you just have to sit here at the border station until you somehow figure out. And uh, her phone, like, started going on the fritz, so she would have been completely screwed. Um if we hadn't been able to upload it and sort of so, but anyway, it took yeah, forty five minutes to fifty minutes to figure that out.
0: It's almost like being given a skill testing question to get it on technology to get into get into the country. And we don't even know who built the thing. We don't even know anything about it really, which is which is even more surprising to some extent. There's it's shrouded in secrecy and yet now it's mandatory and may remain mandatory for quite a while.
1: Yeah, like uh, grocery stores weren't this stupid. So grocery stores when they brought in self-checkouts. Uh, They said, well, you know, they they still have the traditional checkout. They just said, well, if you're smart enough to figure out the self checkout machine, uh, maybe you can shave five minutes off your shopping schedule. But what would be really dumb is if they said, oh, there's no more checkout at all. Everybody has to go through self checkout. So that's, you're just stuck behind someone who's easily confused by technology or is seeing impaired or anything um, who can't figure out the machine and there's absolutely no help for them. Uh, So that's essentially what we've done with the border. And that's not something great to play with, because, again, we have the tourism sector saying we could be losing tens of millions of dollars permanently as a result of this, uh, because if you have someone who they have their annual vacation, they go to Kamloops, Kelowna, whatever, uh, and they go across the border. All you need is a couple of years of us being dicks at the border for them to say, ah, screw it, I'm going to Oregon now.
0: It does make sense. Speaking of holidays, we often talk about where the Prime Minister goes on his vacations. Costa Rica this year. But you did point out that he does have a beautiful cottage, a newly renovated one, if I'm not mistaken, about a bike ride away from his home in Ottawa. Why does not he use that more often? You're pointing out that he does talk a lot about carbon carbon emissions, uh, and yet he seems to have a fairly large footprint himself.
1: Which I don't understand. Uh, Yeah, for, for a very brief period of time, I ran a small publication. And I wanted to keep uh, expenses low, so I sort of modeled that. Whenever we had a staff party, um, we had it outside because it was during COVID, and I would make the coffee. I would just bring a carafe of coffee that I made myself, and, you know, there'd be milk off to the side. And I was just, you know, just to convey this, like, we're trying to keep – we're trying to run things on a shoestring. Don't spend unnecessary money on things. So, yeah, yeah, it's a little weird when if you're going to be – Cutting your own personal carbon footprint. One of the easiest ways to do that is vacation close to home. Um, You know, don't take the trip to Vegas. uh, Just drive like they used to do in the old days. Uh, Go to some cottage near the home where you only have to drive or take the train or whatever. Um, So it is a little weird that, you know, Captain Climate Change, the most climate change uh, obsessed prime minister in Canadian history. Yeah, within a 35 minute bike ride, an incredibly short drive. Um, he can take his, va- his vacations at Harrington Lake, a very nice cottage near Ottawa, modeled to the rest of the country, like, hey, reduce your own carbon footprint, stay off the jet. And instead, all of his vacations, none of his vacations are at Harrington Lake. All of his vacations are like flamboyantly carbon intensive. So we're talking like Tofino, Costa Rica, Florida, and then he'll fly to Florida like eight times because he wants to come back to Ottawa for a meeting. So, I mean, if you ask uh, climate scientists, they say... You know, everybody gets into targets and stuff, but, I mean, we believe that every single ton of carbon that goes into the atmosphere is doing damage, Um, so if you can, if there's a very easy way to stop several hundred tons of, you know, or at least several hundred kilograms of uh, carbon from going into the atmosphere, that's probably something you should consider doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean the Tofino trips. Uh, you know, Tofino is a, a great place. I understand. I've actually never been to Tofino, considering I live on Vancouver Island, which is, which is not a good sign. But it's far, right? Uh, and it couldn't be further from Ottawa. Like you couldn't pick a spot in the country, really. I mean, there are ones, but you couldn't pick a spot that's um, a vacation C- destination. The CFS
1: Alerts in the Arctic. Yeah, that's the only one exactly.
0: I can and I don't think he's going to be vacationing there anytime soon. Tristan Hopper of the National Post is with us. Speaking of politics, we'll stick with that after this. We'll talk a bit more about uh, some tough talk from uh, Jagmeet Singh. This. week of the NDP about this dental plan that may or may not happen on time and what may happen if it doesn't, according to the NDP. But it feels like uh, his dental plan threats don't have a lot of bite. We'll get to that after this. Christian Freeland uh, responded this week to some threats, apparently, from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh about the dental care program that they've promised. This was part of their supply and confidence deal, of course. Here's what she had to say. Delivering new services to Canadians
1: is complicated, and I think Canadians understand that. We are working very, very hard on dental care.
0: So there you have it. First comes the threat. We want to see this done, says Jagmeet Singh. And there's your response. We're working very hard at it. So Tristan, how much uh, confidence do you have in this supply and confidence deal? And the NDP, I mean, you pointed this out in a a piece you wrote this week. They don't have a lot to lay back on here, really, do they?
1: Uh, No, not really. Uh, They could say, uh, hey, we're not going to support this agreement. Uh, That's throwing us into an election in which we're not doing tremendously well in the polls. And now everybody associates us with this government that has never been more unpopular. Um, so yeah, um, I, I, I wouldn't want to be in Jagmeet Singh's uh, shoes right now. And uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of um, the NDP certainly, and Canadians certainly like the agreement at the beginning, every poll showed you know, 60, 70% support uh, for some kind of, it's not a real coalition, but a de facto coalition, but Uh, Yeah, looking at the details, I was thinking, I I think ideally what you would want to do is kind of a coalition agreement like they do uh, in Europe, where you would say, okay, if we're going to support you, you take one of our guys, um, uh, you know, we take our smartest minister, you make the minister of health, and then we completely kill it on the health file. All the liberal uh, cabinet ministers will just keep screwing things up, and then the NDP is going to kill it. So, you know, the next time an election comes around, people are going to remember that. I think that would be the ideal scenario, but instead what they did was, Oh, here's a list of things that you could please do. And, um, we have nothing to do with it. And we meet you once every three months. That's what it says in the agreement that Jugmead and Trudeau, they only have to meet once every quarter. And we just kind of trust that you're going to implement it, even though you have a long track record uh, record of completely screwing things up and promising stuff that you never do. Um, so I can't say it's not predictable. Um, so I've heard arguments that it's doable. So the first stage of the plan involved just extending free dental care to uh, low-income people under the age of 12. Yeah, um, those who so need it. Right? it, it those who need probably, it most. Probably, if for a government that knew what it was doing, that probably could have been done to the end of the year. But for any number of reasons, that's not happening.
0: One of the things I thought, obviously, having lived through the uh, through a period in England, covering uh, covering in London, uh, when the uh, when uh, the uh, the Liberal Democrats were in a coalition with uh, with the Conservatives and how badly it ended for them. Uh, oh, it, it's always bad for the party, the smaller party. They all, This always happens. Um, it's like watching someone walk into a door again and again and again. <laughs> but here we go. It seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I even heard the arguments, and you know, this is what I love about the NDP. They're like, well, maybe we will get slaughtered in the election, but it'll be worth it because we brought in the dental care. Which you know you don't really hear from the other two completely power-hungry parties.
0: No, and speaking of, there's a new poll you were writing out uh, writing about today that shows that amongst uh, traditional, well, let's call younger people, have been traditionally more NDP leaning. The Conservatives seem to be doing okay. I know these polls are a bit volatile and not to be trusted in just one, but it looks like younger people are looking to the Conservatives maybe for some of the uh, some of the answers they've been seeking and not the NDP.
1: Yeah, it's still, it's a plurality, so it's not like 51% are backing the conservatives. But there's been a couple polls, and again, horribly volatile, because I'm a young person. I don't pick up my phone when a pollster calls. Um, so there's like three millennials that are apparently speaking for all of us uh, whenever they do these polls. But anyway, whenever there, there, are, there have been two polls, uh, which they look at the under-29 demographic, and it's a plurality of them are looking to support the conservatives. And again, if you combine the NDP-Liberal vote, it would still be like 60%. But uh, when you break it down, the party with the most singular support is the Conservatives at like 35 percent. It's still not tremendously high, but uh, it's really, really, really weird to see that uh, among young people. I mean, traditionally, throughout almost all of Canadian history, at least the last hundred years, young people do not vote for Conservatives uh, in any large numbers. And that's pretty much true around most of the world, at least the Western world. Um, so I was. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the UK. You look at the UK, and it's you know 56 percent of young people vote for Labour, and then that's completely reversed when it comes to the, the 65 plus Conservatives versus Labour. And you have a similar thing um, in, in the under 30 set. The Republicans just get slaughtered uh, in the United States, and it's been that way for about a generation. The only time it wasn't was actually if you look at Margaret Thatcher in the UK in the 80s. She did have a majority of youth support in 1979 and 1983. Um, so people under 29 were backing her in way larger numbers than they were backing Labor, or liberal, de- liberal Democrats. And you briefly had that with Reagan. Um, he briefly captured majority Republican support among young people, and then they went back to voting Democrats. So it's not totally unprecedented. I assume something probably happened for Mulroney, also in the 1980s. But, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's really strange to see young people like, oh, maybe I'll give the conservatives a support this time around.
0: It might lead you to believe, and this, I, I, and this is going back to Thatcher, that at certain points in time, at certain points in time, a more progressive message starts to land flat if the conditions with which in the society is living, such as high inflation and so on, start to become overwhelming.
1: Yeah, there's a quote from uh, P.J. Uh He just died, actually, a few months really? ago, but he had a quote about, the. there's only two ways that conservatives ever get elected. Um, either they're super charming, and everybody likes them, like Reagan, uh, or everything is so shot to hell that you will finally vote for a conservative just to fix everything. So, um, yeah, nobody liked Margaret Thatcher. Um, she certainly wasn't a warm individual, um, not tremendously compelling with her speech-making. Uh, but, yeah, Britain was just, it's such a crap show, um, You, you it, the circumstances were correct to elect someone who promised harsh medicine to fix it. Um, so you might be seeing that kind of phenomenon if, if indeed this train line continues. Yeah, you could see uh, literally none of us can afford a house. We have the world's most expensive cell phones. Uh, you know, I can't get a passport. <laughs> My flight was delayed at Toronto Pearson. You get enough of those and you're like, you know what, I'll just vote for... Some young guy who dresses like John Diefenbaker, and maybe he'll fix it.
0: Yeah, exactly. As opposed to Josh who's who you referred to as a dad having a midlife – someone having a midlife crisis. I, I didn't say
1: he's having a late-life no, crisis. No, no. I'm just saying he looks Is and sounds cut? like – as someone who's in his 30s, yeah, he looks and sounds exactly like my dad when he was suddenly growing at a fair. And like, oh, I'm investing in the music industry after 30 years in real estate.
0: And that's not a good, good sign, obviously, if you look at No, the it didn't opinion. end
1: well. Um, got it out of his system now, and he's back to wearing tan and wearing chili hats.
0: We may see the same thing with, uh, with Jean Chouret come September the 10th. Uh, it looks at it least. I mean, that's, that's the popular, seems to be the popular momentum. I, I don't see it changing at this point, but uh, you never know. Uh, but still lots of speculation. about it, it looks like it's Polyev's race uh, absolutely to lose, and it would be stunning if he lost, uh, if he didn't win on the first ballot, I think, at this point.
1: Yeah, somewhere. I mean, because we gotta, we got to cover these things. You always, you always write, you, you write one story for if one candidate wins and one story for the other one wins. So this will probably be one of those scenarios where we're all very lazy as journalists. We just don't, don't write the other one for and that, You know, We'll assume I, the polls a right one.
0: I remember covering Stéphane Dion at the Liberal Leadership Race, I guess, back in the late uh, 2008. And I hadn't even written a story for him to win, and he won. So there you go. There's yeah, a yeah. How, to, how do you spell uh, that? Dion. <laughs> to journalists out there. Tristan Hopper, as always, thank you so much for your time. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back. Oh, thank you.